Well, I do thank you so much for joining us today. If we haven't met, my name is Jason Dees. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ's Covenant. And it is a joy to be able to open God's Word with you today. I invite you, if you're there at your house, to go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word to open it with me. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 27, a very famous passage of Scripture. Matthew 27, verse 45 through 54. And of course, we believe the words of Scripture, uh, or these words in particular, written down by the disciple of Jesus, Matthew, but he was, he was writing them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore these words come to us with authority, uh, the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching us. So let's hear together as I read aloud the word of Christ. Matthew 27, verse 45 through 54. Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it for him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and rocks were split, and the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, we've been looking at questions, questions that people oftentimes ask of Christianity, uh, questions that for some makes it difficult to believe in Christianity. We asked the question the first week, why would a good God allow so much pain and suffering in the world? Last week, if you were here, we, we kind of looked at the seemed conflict between Christianity and science. Why, why does it seem that so many Christians reject science? And I just encourage you, if you're interested in those, to either look on our YouTube page or uh, listen to them on our sermon podcast. But today, on this Easter Sunday, I, I want to look at maybe the biggest question of all, uh, the question that, that really matters to this day and, and really matters for us right now is, is why Why does all of this matter? Why does an ancient Jewish man that lived 2,000 years ago matter to modern people? If you really think about what Christians believe, we believe that this ancient Jewish man that lived in an obscure village, um, that had kind of an obscure life 2,000 years ago, he had a short three-year ministry Uh, where he did many signs and wonders that people reported, but it was over a very short period of time. He held no major office. He had no power really to speak of. And then he was crucified by the Romans. Why are we hanging the hopes and dreams of our life 
on this man? Why is he so significant? Of course, Christians believe, as we celebrate today, that after he was crucified, he was raised. But there's a lot of questions that come with the resurrection. I mean, isn't it more plausible to believe that the resurrection of Jesus, this was kind of a myth that was developed by his followers. This was something that people came up with to give credence to his ministry. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, that that he was raised. Well, still, what does it really matter? Maybe some supernatural thing did happen, but does that really matter now? And why does it matter? So if you had these questions, I'm really glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're listening in. Why does all of this matter? And, and particularly on Easter Sunday, why is this so important to so many people? Now, I think this passage actually gives us some insights, but it's going to take me a while to get to the passage. I want to answer this question, and we're going to end with the passage that I just read, but it's a bit of a journey to get there. So, so bear with me. And, and as we're on the journey... I want to look at two kind of big ideas. I'm stealing these ideas from an old Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon. He actually didn't, it wasn't on this text. It really wasn't about what I'm talking about today, but I just like these phrases. The plight of man and the power of God. The plight of man and the power of God. You know, this is a great time right now to be thinking about the plight of man We're a little more aware right now of our weakness. We're a little bit aware, more aware right now of our own neediness, aren't we? I mean, I was so excited about 2020. I had all these plans. I had all these dreams, right? I was going to do all this. I was going to travel to all these places. Christ's covenant. We were going to do all these things together in 2020. You know, Paige and I take a, do a little planning retreat every year in December. And we sat down to put down our goals for 2020 we had no idea that a global pandemic would be coming this spring. Uh, Of course, we weren't alone. No one had any idea in December of 2019 that, that all of this would be happening. We all had plans. We all had dreams. And and now things are different. It wasn't this. You know, my favorite movies is this, uh, it's actually an old TV miniseries called Lonesome Dove, and it's a long, it's like a six-hour slog, but it's, it's really good. It stars Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones, and it's a movie about a bunch of old cowboys that do this big cattle drive from Texas to Montana, and they have a, this, this lady that's among their drive that they all kind of love. Her name is Lori, and, and at one point on the cattle drive, she's kidnapped. She's taken away by this Indian blue duck. And Blue Duck and and his fellow Indians, you can just imagine they do these horrible things to her. Uh, But eventually Gus, who's one of the cowboys, this is the guy that Robert Duvall plays, he goes and rescues her. He goes and gets her and he kills off all the Indians and he gets the the lady back, Lori, and he's taking her back to the drive. He's taking her back home. And, And he's trying to talk to her and she's just so distraught. She's just so overcome with emotion. And he's trying to comfort her. And and at one point, she just starts speaking up and she says, Gus, it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't happen this way. That They shouldn't have done this to me. They shouldn't have done this to me. It shouldn't have happened, Gus. And I love Gus's response. He puts his arm around her and he says, Lori, I know it shouldn't happen, but it did. (laughs) But it did. Here we are. I mean, we've all had that moment 
it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened this way. But it did. We weren't supposed to get sick. We don't expect to lose our jobs. We don't expect injustice to come our way. We expect things to go right and well. There, there is this longing in our heart and expectations that things will go well for us. I think this is this idea of the plight of man. You know, it's hard to capture the plight of man in just a few words, but if I had to, a few of the words that, that came to mind as I was thinking about this is, is number one, security, right? We, we, we want to be secure. We want to know that everything that we've worked for, everything that we love, we want to know that tomorrow it's going to be there. It's going to be secure. It's, it's going to be safe. We also desire prosperity. We, we want to do well. We want to be useful. We want to use our gifts and our talents for something. And we want to be well taken care of, to be recognized. And actually, this leads us to, I think, a third thing that we, we all kind of desire, and that's an identity, right? We, we, we all want to be known. We, we all want someone to see us, someone to recognize us, someone to think that we're special, someone to think that we've actually contributed something. And I also think, and there's probably more than this, but, but I also think that that we all have a desire for justice. We, we want to know that the world is fair, that, that we, there is some set of normality, there is some set of right and wrong that we can trust in the world. There, there is some justice somewhere, and I, I think that we genuinely desire justice for others. We genuinely want people to be treated fairly, for people to be taken care of. I think this, is, this tells us a lot. These, these four words, these four ideas, they tell us a lot about the plight of man. And here's the deal. There are shadows of this in the world, right? We see some security, right? There is a sense of security. We, we have security accounts. We, we have insurance. We, we have alarm systems. We have a sense of security in the world. There's shadows of security. There's shadows of prosperity. There's shadows of identity, there's even shadows of justice in the world, but, but let's be honest, they're just shadows, right? Just, just the time when you feel like you finally got some security in the world, coronavirus comes around. Just, just when you're finally getting some prosperity, you're finally getting some financial freedom, you lose your job. Just when you finally feel like you have an identity, when, when people are starting to recognize you and think you're special, somebody else gets all the attention, right? Just when you finally think there's justice in the world, you're treated incredibly unfairly, and there's nothing you can do about it. It shouldn't have been this way. It shouldn't have been this way. It shouldn't have happened, but it did. You know, and the reason that it did, the reason that it went wrong, the reason there's just shadows of these things in the world is, is because we are not as, as we are supposed to be. You see, God's design for us, God's design for the world is that we would know him and love him and have fellowship with him, that we would be wrapped up in him and that he would be our security. See, this is God's desire for us, that, that we would know him and that he would be our security. What is more secure than God? What's more secure than knowing God? That he would be our prosperity, right? I mean, if you have God, if, 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 
you have a relationship with God, if you have the inheritance of God, if all that is God's is yours, then what more could you have? That he would be our identity. I mean, if God thinks you're special, if God thinks you're interesting, then what more do you need? And that God would be our justice. God is altogether right. He will make the world all right. And you see, all of you, whether you believe in God or not, you all have a longing in your heart for this. And when life doesn't work out this way, there is something in all of us. There's this clue. It says it's not supposed to be this way. Where does that come from? You see, I would say it this way. There, there's, there's a little bit of you that remembers the Garden of Eden. There, there's a little bit of you that remembers when all was well with God, where everything was right. But, but now, of course, we've, we've all been separated from God. We've been ripped away from this security. We've been ripped away from this prosperity and ripped away from this identity and ripped away from this justice. And we've been ripped away by our own sin. Now, sin, I know, is something that it's, it's hard to talk about. A lot of us don't talk about it very often. And it's, and it's hard to see, right? I think sin is actually something that it's very hard to get clarity on. It, it, particularly, it's hard to get clarity on your own sin, right? We're, we're, we're pretty good at finding sin in others. We're pretty good at recognizing the faults of others, recognizing the evil that exists around us. But it's, it's hard to have that kind of clarity in here. It's easy to see out there. It's harder to see in here. Even the most evil people, the people that everybody recognizes as evil, we're all pretty good at self-justifying, right? I mean, Kim Jong-un thinks he's a good guy. He thinks he's taking care of his people. Hitler, Stalin, bin Laden, all of these people thought that the things that we recognize as evil, they thought that what they were doing were good and right things, or at least things that, that they had to do to accomplish some greater good. See, sin's one of those things. It's actually really hard to get clarity on. It's hard to get outside of our own heads. You can't really get clarity on yourself unless you have some sort of outside perspective. David Foster Wallace, uh, who was a great American writer, the first part of this century, the 21st century, he, he, uh, he tells this joke about fish. I'll just read it to you. He says, there were two fish swimming along, and they happened to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nodded at them and said, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swam on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looked at the other and goes, what in the world is water? You see, the point is, you have a very poor vantage point to judge yourself. You have a very poor vantage point to judge whether or not you are righteous, to know whether or not you're good or bad. We, we, we have to have something external to judge us rightly. And, you know, if somebody ever says that they're without sin or that they're righteous, here's the question I always like to ask them. Would you even want your best friend, your best friend, the person that knows you the best and loves you the best, would you even want your best friend to know everything? I mean, I'm talking about everything, not just everything you've ever done, all those secret things that you've done, but every thought you've ever had, all of those things that run through your mind, every intention you've ever had, you know, all those times where, man, get the good thoughts, but, but also the times where you thought, man, what, what was that? What was I thinking? Would you even want your best friend to know all of that? And if they did, what would they say? <laughs> what would they have the clarity to say? Would they say, he's without sin? He's totally righteous? No, they, they would say, he's, there's some weird stuff in there. 
And that's your best friend who wouldn't want you to know everything about them. But if you really want to know what's true of you and true of me, what we really need is the perspective of God. And what would he say? What's the one who is totally righteous and totally good? One of the things that that we see in the Bible in Romans 2, Paul is talking about the law in Romans 2, and and he he says, look, you know, those that have the law, the law is a grace. It, it, It shows us our true selves, it shows us that we can't really know God. But even even the people that don't have the law, even the people that haven't read the law of Moses, they know, they know that they're messed up. They know that they're not all right. If you have any clarity at all, we know that we're really not what God designed us to be. And I think we also have this intuition that we'll have to one day give an account, that we have to answer for our lives, I think we have an intuition that, that, that we, we, we need to do something to justify ourselves. This is what will make us important. This is what will overcome the wrongs. This is part of the plight of man. You know, if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, there's two main sections in the Bible. The, the, the first half is called the Old Testament. The second half is called the New Testament. In the New Testament, where we are today, it tells about Jesus. It tells about his followers. But the Old Testament talks a lot about Israel. The, the Hebrew nation, the, the Jewish people. And it talks about their experiences. And a lot of people that they are kind of just getting into Bible study think, well, the Jewish people made right before God by uh, obeying laws or passing tests or their sacrificial system or having the right king that was chosen by God. That's, that's what they did. But, but I want you to hear this. If, if the Old Testament teaches us anything, it doesn't teach us that they made right by these things. It actually teaches us that they were needy because of these things. They, they couldn't pass the test. They, they couldn't obey the law. The sacrifices ultimately didn't add up to much. And, and even their best leaders messed up. If you think about Adam in the garden, right? God gave him this great test. He said, look, obey me about this tree. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and if, you, if you obey me, if you pass this test, you'll live. But if you don't, you'll, you'll die. And of course, what do we know? He was tempted. He, he fell into sin. He, he ate of the tree. He brought this curse. He brought sin upon all of us. He, he failed the test. Then, of course, later in Scripture, we have the Mosaic law. The law came along. God delivered the law through Moses. And again, people think, okay, we could just obey this law. If we could just know these rhythms, then we could rightly know God. But the people couldn't obey the law. They couldn't do what the law said. Of course, built into the law was a sacrificial system. When they did sin, when they did mess up, there was a sacrifice to be made. But as we talked about Friday, even though the sacrifices in the temple gave them some sense of peace with God. They really always fell short, and they had to be given over and made over and over and over and over again. And of course, the kind of the last big theme that we see in the Old Testament is, well, maybe there's some leader. Maybe there's some king, this, this true king or true leader that will finally take care of us, finally help us. But of course, what do we see all throughout the Old Testament, every leader that God raises up, they're all flawed. None of them can really obey. None of them can really follow the way of God. None of them 
can really be the leader that the people want to be. And of course, what do we see throughout the whole Old Testament? It's this message that you need a savior. (laughs) It's this message to, to quote what Bob Dylan once said is that man can't save himself. We can't save ourselves. Now, I know you may be thinking, well, yeah, okay, Jason, this would be interesting if I was interested in the Old Testament, if I was interested in Jewish law. This would be interesting if I was a Jewish person. But, but what do these stories have to say to me? And I just want to say to you, don't you see that these stories are your stories? Don't you see that these things are exactly what we have done? How, how have you tried to please God? How have you tried to justify your life? How have you tried to show that your life is actually worth something? Well, you try to pass the test, right? You try to make the good grade, get into the good school, get the job. You know, a lot of you that are watching today, you've, you've done really well with tests. But you know what you always see? It's never enough, right? You pass the test, you pass the next test, you do the next thing, and there's always something else to do. There's always something else to do. You can never really pass the final test. There's always another test. You can never really pass. There's this great scene in the old movie Chariots of Fire where one of the runners, Harold Abrahams, says before his big race, he says, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. I've got to pass this test to justify my existence. But what happened? You know what happened? He won. He actually won the race. But of course, then another Olympics came and another and another. And and soon Harold Abrams, his big record, his big medal, it was forgotten. These tests, they don't really last. But maybe you're like, you know, I'm not really counting on a big achievement. You know, I'm a good person. I know that I'm somebody special because I am a good person. I know I do the right thing. You know, I'm just going to tell you, You know, some of the least moral people I know are the people that think they're the most moral. I mean, most of the the, the people that I think their hearts are really hard, that they're really missing it, are actually the people that that hold out the morality as their justification. They're they're oftentimes the most judgmental. They're oftentimes the least loving, the least compassionate. In fact, Jesus speaks to this with the Pharisees. These were the guys that were known as the moral people in his day. And he says this in Matthew 24, he says, what are you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? (laughs) You tithe the mint and dill and cumin. These are the smallest little weights. He says, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're, you're so worried about your little insignificant tithes that you're, you're missing what God really values. Then he says this. I love this. He says, uh, he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting other. Then he says, you blind guides straining out the gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, this would have sent shockwaves. In, in this time, dietary laws were everything. Everybody was trying to find their righteousness by what they ate and what they didn't eat. And a gnat was obviously unclean. But you know what else was really unclean? A camel. And he's like, you have, you have done everything that you can. You've been so focused on not eating the gnat that you don't realize that you're actually eating a camel. You've been so focused on being this moral person and justifying yourself that way that you don't even see this great sin that's on your hands. 
maybe you're no, I, it's not achievements that make me special. It's not my morality that makes me special. But, but for me, it's, you know, I, I'm a sacrificial person. I've been very generous. Or, you know, maybe you've had a tough childhood that you've overcome or this great challenge. I've had to go through sacrifice. That's, that's made me special. But does that make you righteous? Does that really make you good or bad before God? Maybe you're trusting the right leader, trusting the right company culture, trusting the right brand. Haven't you seen by now that, that every leader will fail you? Every earthly leader has so many flaws. And even these, maybe if you're trusting a company or trusting something that, man, this makes you special, trusting some job, don't you see that that will end? I was talking to a guy the other day. He gave his whole life to this organization. He gave his whole life to it. He started it. He gave his whole life to it. And then you know what happened? organization grew. He got old. His ideas got stale. They kind of pushed him out. I mean, he goes back there and everybody's kind of forgotten about him. So don't you see that, that these stories, the stories of the test of the Old Testament law and the sacrifices and the leaders that failed, don't, don't you see that these are like your stories? Don't you see that the people of Israel were, were trying to justify themselves in the same way that you're trying to justify yourselves? And the story then and the story with you is the same. It doesn't add up. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't justify. It doesn't ever last. This is the plight of man. Man cannot save himself. The people of Israel needed God to save them. And you need God to save you. They couldn't find their way back into a right relationship with God, no matter what they tried, and neither can you. And so I want to move now from the plight of man to our second point, which is the power of God. And this, this is why an ancient Jewish man matters so much to modern people. You see, God's plan was this, how God was going to save us, how God was going to bring us back in, is that he was actually going to send his son, Jesus. He was going to send Jesus, who is God himself, to become a man, to save us, to rescue us, to make us new. This is why Christians talk about being saved or being born again. We need to be made new. We know that we're not right. We have this longing. We know that we're supposed to be brought back in. And that's what God did. He sent his son Jesus to be a man. We needed someone who could help us to lead us back. Someone who could pass the test. Someone who was really righteous. Someone who really, whose sacrifice could really work. Some leader who really was worthy. And this is what God did. He became a man. He became just like us. Just like us. He, and he didn't even come as an adult, as a king somewhere. No, he, he identifies with us so fully. Jesus was born literally as a baby. He, he literally experienced what it meant to be a baby, what it meant to be a child. He, he really felt things like pain and sorrow and joy and friendship and laughter and hunger. He, he lived in a community. He was in a family. He had brothers and sisters. Jesus, God himself, came to identify us, to be fully a man and came to identify with us in every way. But, but he was the one in his coming that did what we couldn't do. We couldn't pass the test. But Jesus passed the test. Jesus, in the same way that Adam was tempted by the serpent, Jesus was tempted by the serpent. Remember Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan himself? And every time he passed the test, 
He obeyed the command of God, and he even passed the greatest test of all by obeying God, even at the point of death on a cross. I love how Tim Keller describes this scene. He says, to the first Adam, God said, obey me about the tree, and I will bless you. And Adam didn't do it. But to the second Adam, Jesus, God says, obey me about the tree, go to the cross, and I will crush you. And Jesus does. Jesus was the one that actually passed the test. Jesus was the one that actually obeyed, and not in some sort of self-righteous, moralistic way. I mean, Jesus is known as a friend of sinners. But, but, it, but the Bible says this, he knew no sin. He knew sinners, he loved sinners, but he knew no sin. You see, we all know sin. When we get some clarity on our own heart, on our own life, we all know that we're messed up. We know that we're a sinner. But, but if you could have really looked inside of Jesus, if you could look inside of him, you could see all his thoughts, you would see nothing but purity, nothing but righteousness. He always obeyed God's order. And of course, Jesus became the great sacrifice. He didn't offer a sacrifice. No, Jesus actually became the sacrifice. As John the Baptist described, I mean, he was the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. And that's why this text is so important. Jesus, who came to identify with us, who passed every test, who obeyed the law perfectly, is now on a cross being forsaken by God. And he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people didn't know what he was doing. They thought he was calling Elijah. They, they couldn't contemplate the depths of this moment. You know, my dad called me yesterday just to check in, just to say, hey, just say, hey, I love you, son. And he called me like that because that's what my dad does. He loves me, and he's always loved me. He's a great father. He, he has always been in my corner. He has always encouraged me. He's given me so much strength through my life because I know he's there. He's an anchor for me. And you know what I know? I know that he's always going to be there for me. You know, if, if, if all you guys betray me and fail me, if all my friends turn my back on me, even, even if Paige left me someday, you know what? I, I believe my dad, he's going to be there. He's in my corner. He's going to love me. He's going to encourage me. I can count on him because, you know, I have a dad like that. He loves me. He's for me. And I want you to hear this. As much as my dad is for me, as much as my dad loves me and he's in my corner, it, his love for me doesn't compare to how much God the Father loves his son. And yet here in this moment, this is what's so amazing about this moment. Here in this moment, the son is being forsaken. The son is crying out to the father, and the father is not there. As we read in Isaiah 53, the son is being crushed, and he calls out to his father for help, but it's actually the father who is crushing him. Why? Well, don't you see? Jesus passed the test. He, he was totally righteous. He did what we couldn't do, and then on the cross, he took our place. Jesus traded places with us. He, he was the righteous that exchanged places with the unrighteous. He was the one who had fellowship with God, who became the outcast. 
He was the one who had life, who had reward, who took the place of the one who deserved to be punished, of the one who deserved to die. Don't you see what Jesus is doing here? He's trading places with us. He, he was put to death so that we could live. He was forsaken so that we could be brought in. He was cursed with our sin, punished, so that we could be forgiven. Don't you see? He was the true sacrifice. He passed the test. He, he lived in accordance with God's law. He, he was the true sacrifice. And in his resurrection, in the power of his resurrection, he has become for his church, for all who believe in him, this great leader that we can count on, that we can follow. I mean, if you can follow him through death to life, then you can follow him anywhere. You can count on him. You can know that he will never fail you. Don't you see why an ancient Jewish man is so important? Because this story isn't about a man. It's about God rescuing us. It's about God sending his son to call us back in. It's, a, it's, about, it's about you seeing God's grace and knowing God again being found in him, being rescued in him. And look at the result. Look at verse 51. After this, after Jesus is forsaken by God, after he yields up his spirit, finishing the work of our salvation, it says in 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As I mentioned on Friday, the temple in Jerusalem, it was the most holy place. Only the high priest could go back there once a year, and God's presence was among them, but it was guarded. It was shielded by this curtain. It was, it was not to be experienced by the people, but when Jesus finished the work of salvation, of redemption, the curtain is torn. Now in Christ, we can really once again know the presence of God. We can have access to God. What if this happened? That's what I would ask you. What if this happened? What if God had done this for you? What if God sent Jesus to reconcile us back to himself? What if God really came to undo all of the times when you said it shouldn't have been this way? What if you had a hope that you would never say that again? What if, to quote Tolkien, all the sad things are coming untrue? Well, if that would have happened, and I believe it did, then these next few verses don't seem so strange. Look at 51 again. It says, the earth shook and the rocks split and tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And people say, is this real? Are these resurrections happening over all over Jerusalem? Here's what I do know. Something so dramatic happened that day. And here's what it was. It was God restoring the world back to himself. And if that happened, this actually seems incredibly appropriate, that life would spring forth as death is being undone. And of course, Jesus himself was ultimately the one that came out of the tomb, even though it was guarded by heavy soldiers and heavy stone, and all the forces of evil, nothing was going to stop Jesus. Jesus, on this Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate this, that he has defeated death. He has traded places with us. He was forsaken so that we could be brought close. He took on death so that we could have life. He was broken off from God so that we could be restored to God. And now he lives so that we can live with him. Why does an ancient Jewish man matter to modern people? 
Well, because if this is true, this is everything. He wasn't just an ancient Jewish man. Look how the passage ends, verse 54. It says, when the centurion, who was the Roman guard, not a Jew, not a believer, a pagan, when he saw all this, it says, when, ter- when the centurion and those who were with him, when he saw all this, keeping watch over Jesus, when he saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and wonder and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And I guess the question that I have for you is do you believe as the centurion believed? Do you believe that God has visited us? That God in Christ is calling us back in? That God in Christ is is calling us back home, as it were, that you can actually know God. You can be restored to God. You can overcome even our greatest enemy, the enemy of death. Do you believe that the Son of God has visited us? Now, people ask me all the time, what does it mean, you know, how do we take hold of this? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Like, how do we get the benefits of Jesus through faith? What does it mean to be in Jesus? And people act like this is such a hard thing to take hold of, but it's really pretty simple. I mean, many of you probably feel some sense of achievement, feel some sense of identity because of a college that you went to, or you feel some sense of identity because of a company that you worked for. Well, it's a, it's the same thing. The reason that that college gives you an identity is that you were found in that college. And it wasn't just your achievements that made that college special. It was the achievements of its professors, the achievements of its faculty, the, the recognition it had all over the world for sending out good graduates. You see, it was the achievements of others, and, and you actually received the benefit of just being in that college, or you received the benefit of working for that company. Your name, your status was changed because you were found in something. And this is the invitation of Jesus. He says to you, be found in me. Identify with me through faith. Come to me. And and all it requires is faith. All it requires is to look to him, to be anchored in him, to find your life in him. And here's here's what Jesus is calling us back to. He's calling us back to what we know we're supposed to have, a security, a prosperity, an identity, a a justice that that comes to us from knowing God. See, this is why this this day is so important to people like me and to Christians around the world. It's because we're in Christ. And we believe that in Christ, we have died. Our sin has been paid for. Just as Jesus died and paid for our sin, our sin has been dealt with. We are forgiven. We believe that in Christ and in his righteousness, we can be righteous. We don't have to fear God. We don't have to always be proving ourselves. We we have on our account the righteousness of Christ himself. We believe that in Christ, just as he was raised from the dead, we will be raised. We don't have to fear death. And more than that, we believe that in Christ, we have been called to his eternal kingdom where we will live with him, where where the Bible says that even now he's preparing a place for us. That's why on this day we celebrate. 
That's why on this day we have so much joy. That's why on this day we have so much hope. Because in Christ, we have all of these things. In Christ, that reminder of the garden, that reminder that we're supposed to know God. That thing in the back of our head that says it's not supposed to be this way. In Christ, we, we've found our way back to the way it is supposed to be. And so once you believe in him, once you look to him, once you give your life to him, quit placing your faith in dreams and smaller things. What, what is anchoring your life? Your job, your money? Don't you see how short those things are? Don't you see how, don't you see how unsecure and unsatisfying and unjust so many of those things are? Won't you anchor your life in Christ and in him know God and believe with me on this day that this was the son of God. This was the son of God. And he's inviting us back home. Let's pray together. Father, I, I come before you now asking on behalf of, of everyone right now that can, that can hear me, everyone that's listening in on this, everyone that's watching wherever they are. I pray, Father, that, that these words, these, these truths that we talked about today would penetrate their heart and that you would give them faith in Christ, that they would find their way to Jesus and, and in Jesus find their way to you. That their identity, their security, their, their prosperity wouldn't be found in lesser and temporal and fading things. But they would find those things in God by finding themselves in Christ. May they believe in his death and his atoning death that God has given this great sacrifice on their behalf. May they believe in his righteousness, that Jesus has passed the test on our behalf. He's, he's obeyed your law, that Jesus is our great king. May they look to him, Lord. May I look to him even anew. So Father, I pray for those who, who have no faith that you would begin to give them faith. For those who have faith, maybe small, maybe strong, Lord, you increase it. All the more, may we, may we rest in Christ and be found in Christ. Look to Jesus. And I pray all this in his name, for his sake. Amen. Well, I want to invite you, um, as we just prepare to respond, and, and, and we're going to sing here together, and I invite you to sing in your own homes, but I want to invite you right now, if, if God is calling you to himself, if God is doing something in your heart right now and you believe, God, man, I think, I think the Lord's given me faith. I think I believe. I, I invite you not to just, please don't just sit on that. I actually would personally love to have a conversation with you about that. And there's actually a way to respond uh, to me that we have a connect card that's just right below the YouTube channel that you're watching. You can click on that, fill out a connect card. I will get back in touch with you. We also have this great little tool that we call text to pastor. And again, we're, we're, we're filming this live. This is happening right now. I have my phone in my hand and you can actually send me a text message right now. I'd love to connect with you that way. It's 678-951-9041, 678-951-9041. And I just would love the opportunity to connect with you, to pray with you, to answer questions like mentioned earlier. 
that you may have, please connect with us. And, you know, I, I know I may just be some stranger on the YouTube channel. And maybe if you know a Christian, you know somebody that you know knows the Lord. And if God sends something in your heart through this message, go talk to them. Just go say, I think I want to talk to you about what it means to really know Jesus and be found in him. And as we think about all these things, as we meditate on these things, I invite you to even respond now as we're led in song.